Thank you for your word now, and we pray that you would help us to hear it with faith and obey it motivated by love for each other, love for you, and love for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the last of four sermons on the conscience that we have been considering through the month of July. Just a quick review. On week one, we clarified by giving a definition of what the conscience is. We said it's the moral faculty within human beings that assesses right and wrong, that it's a gift from God, it's to be received as a gift, and it's something that God has put in us by virtue of being in his image. The second week, we consider what happens when the conscience goes badly. We looked at what the New Testament says about a weak conscience, a defiled conscience, an evil conscience, or a guilty conscience, and even how we can get a good conscience and maintain a good conscience. We talked about that that a good conscience is given to us as a gift of the gospel. It's offered to us through the cleansing blood of Christ, that it's strengthened through baptism, and it's protected by our obedience to the Lord. In week three, last week, we talked about how the conscience gets rightly calibrated through the Word of God, how that our conscience in and of itself is not infallible, it's not without error, it's not perfect, it can't be trusted all the time, and so it has to be informed and shaped and guided, and it's informed and shaped and guided through God's Word. And we saw that in the example of Peter in Acts 10 as the sheet was coming down, and everything in Peter was probably protesting the bacon he was seeing up there, but nevertheless he had to push back against what his conscience was telling him because God's voice was speaking a definitive word about Peter, and specifically related to Jewish dietary laws. We talked about the, it's important to calibrate the conscience because it allows us to protect the unity of the church, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. It allows us to enjoy all of good gifts, all of God's good gifts, eliminate things that would serve as rivals to our ultimate loyalty to Jesus, and also to serve one another. This morning, then, we come to our last week and last sermon on the conscience. Lord willing, we'll get back into the book of Exodus next week. And this morning we're going to consider consideration. How do we consider each other's consciences and why is that so significant? Why is that so important? We might find it hard to admit, but sometimes the family of God has a hard time getting along with each other. We fight and we fume and we quarrel and we split. And we've been doing this for a long time. This is, unfortunately the pattern of life for God's people in a fallen world as we await the one day in which all of God's people, sin-free, will be united together before God's presence. Some things for sure are worth fighting for. If you read any measure of church history, you will see that, that some things are definitely worth fighting for. But most of the time, I'm afraid, that most of God's people split, especially in recent centuries, have been over small, petty, eternally insignificant things. It's not justification by faith. It's buildings and budgets. It's not the Trinity. It's personalities and pews. It's not the inerrancy of the Bible. It's choirs. It's curriculum. Those sorts of things. We divide over what the Bible says we should not be dividing over. And we do it in the name of obeying the Bible, which is sad. A good dose of Romans 14 is what God's people need. All of God's people need. Because Romans 14 instructs us how to love other people in the church who have different conscience standards than we do. 
Think about this. Think about this. The greatest letter ever written, the book of Romans, in this great gospel letter that heralds the truths of justification by faith and sanctification and glorification and perfection through suffering and all that Paul packs into these 16 chapters, 10% of it, 10% of the greatest letter ever written is spent dealing with conscience controversies in the church. 10%. We do well to give it the same kind of attention. This passage is both brilliant and profound as it displays God's great wisdom and insight through the Apostle Paul given illumination by the Holy Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, it is essential that we learn how to deal with non-essentials. It is essential that we learn how to deal with non-essentials, and Romans 14 helps us to do just that. So we're going to look at three points this morning out of the book of Romans 14. We're going to be bouncing back and forth in the chapter to different verses, but the outline is as follows. If you have a sheet, you have it in front of you. We're going to look at the information-providing context. That is, what's the background of this chapter? Who are the people involved? How can we get information so that we can understand it? Point number two, we're going to look at the disagreement-causing content. That is, what is, what are these Roman Christians especially prone to argue about, fight over, on the basis of their backgrounds? And then number three, which is where we'll spend most of our time, is the harmony-ensuring conduct. What does the Apostle Paul tell them? How does he tell them to behave in light of the gospel to ensure the harmony in the body of Christ? Number one, the information providing context. Just a little background on to whom Paul's writing here in the book of Romans. A typical church in Paul's day consisted of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. This was inevitable because Paul, a Jewish called apostle, was called to go to the Gentile world. And so as a Jewish man, he would be recognized as such, but he's teaching Christianity. He's teaching the fulfillment of Judaism in the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's preaching that the Messiah has come. And this Messiah is not for one nation, but for all nations. And most Jewish Christians that Paul would have interacted with would have carried a strictness into their new faith since they came from a religious culture that placed a high premium on eating food that was only allowed under the Old Testament administration. Most Gentiles had no such background. They didn't know the food laws. They didn't have the food laws. They didn't care about the food laws. They weren't Jews. So you had, and this is an oversimplification, but I think it helps for clarity at least, a Jewish group in the church that advocated for keeping some of their previous food restrictions alongside a group of Gentile Christians who advocated for eating whatever they wanted because everything belongs to God. Doug Moo, New Testament commentator, helpfully explains the background when he says, the weak in faith, probably mainly Jewish Christians, were influenced by their tradition of asceticism. Jewish Christians in Rome convinced that the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, was still authoritative for Christians. That is, of course we know that the first five books are authoritative for Christians, but in this matter of Jewish dietary law, that's what Moo is referring to, claimed that a sincere Christian should avoid meat and win and should observe Jewish holy days. Only by following such practices could a Christian avoid ritual contamination and please God. Paul is writing Romans in part because a division was happening in the church community and he is going to rebuke the two groups. 
for being intolerant of one another. Well, we might think the Apostle Paul is always being chosen to take sides in matters. He almost never does. He never takes sides. He rebukes both of them for arguing. There's a lot to learn about conflict resolution and how the Apostle Paul goes about it. When somebody is pulling you to try to take a side, that's not a good thing usually. Now, if it's on the side of the Trinity or not, probably should take that side. But if it's on the side of a conscience matter or a preference or a perspective, probably not. He had, had the two groups been content to live beside one another in the midst of these differences, Paul wouldn't have felt the need to write Romans 14. But human nature being what it is, both sides went too far in either imposing their scruples, that would be the Jewish Christians, or imposing their freedoms, that would be the Gentile Christians, on each other. The strong Gentile Christians were behaving arrogantly, saying, Listen, Jews, you're theologically uninformed. And you Jewish Christians are not stepping into the full freedom that we have in Christ now. Meanwhile, the weak Jewish Christians were behaving judgmentally, saying, you're behaving sinfully and are being unfaithful to God by failing to incorporate Jewish practice into your Christianity. Pushed to the extreme, both sides can eventually fall into heresy. The strong conscience can, in the name of freedom cross carelessly into unrighteousness, distorting the gospel through lawless subtraction, but also the weak conscience can, in the name of strictness, cross the line into self-righteousness, distorting the gospel by legalistic addition. The gospel is a threat, is under threat in both the weak and the strong if they do not behave in ways consistent with it. So this is the way that Paul handles it in Romans 14. He's going to address both of them both the weak and the strong, even though he himself would have a strong conscience and wouldn't have a problem with the views that the Gentiles are espousing. Nevertheless, he does have a problem with the way they are advocating for their views, the way they're going about handling their views in the context of the church. So that's the information providing context. Number two, the disagreement causing content. What is it that was giving problems? here in Romans 14. Well, to be clear, these are not first-level issues like we talked about, but they were being handled as such, and that's why Paul had a problem with it. They were elevating third-tier minor disagreements to first-level doctrinal issues, and whenever that starts happening, division, split is not too far away, and it feels so right to do that. That's, what, that's why we're deceived by it. It feels, it feels like we're caring about the Bible. It feels like we're pressing into all that God has revealed. I mean, these, this is what God has said, and this is what I'm advocating for. And, and, but, but slowly but surely, we can think that our perspective is actually God's perspective. And that may not be the case. So Romans 14 mentions three specific areas of disagreement. And to try to be somewhat memorable and helpful, I've put them in the form of D's. Diet, days, and drink. Diet, days, and drink. There were some in the church, according to diet and Jewish requirements, to eat, who would eat only vegetables. And there were some in the church who advocated for eating much more than that, not just vegetables, but meat and all other sorts of things as well. So diet was an issue. Days were an issue. Some valued days more highly than other days, especially certain aspects of Jewish Sabbath. And then drink. 
They, some abstained from wine and some did not. So in Romans 15.1, Paul refers to the two groups of people in the church as the weak and the strong. Now he's not talking about physical weakness or physical strength. He's not even talking about faith because he says the weak are weak in faith and he says the strong are strong in faith. In other words, Paul wants to affirm that both of these categories of Christian have faith. They're both operating out of good desires. They're both operating out of a desire to trust and please and follow God. They're just not embracing all that God has revealed in the Word of God, or they're not understanding it all the same way. And so the strong are those whose consciences would allow them to eat all kinds of food, make no distinction among Jewish days, and drink wine. The weak are those whose conscience allows them to eat only vegetables, value some days more than others, and abstain from wine. Now, these are just examples in that particular church. These are not the only examples that could be given of strong and weak. This is a particular historical context at a particular point in time where Jewish and Gentile Christians are trying to get along and work together. But the principles apply. Weak and strong, again, have absolutely nothing to do with how long a person has been a Christian. A person can be a, have a weak conscience and have been in Christ 55 years. And a person could have a strong conscience and be in Christ two weeks. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with a spiritual maturity grasp, grasping what the Word of God teaches. It has to do with their conscience and whether their conscience allows them freedom where God's Word grants freedom or whether the conscience creates rules and restrictions in place of the freedom Christ's Word allows. That's the issue of weak and strong. The strong have their conscience calibrated so that they are walking in the freedom that God's word has provided. They are not using their freedom, as we saw last week, as a cover-up for the flesh to indulge in sin. That's not what we're talking about. Where God's word has granted freedom, the strong in conscience can navigate that with a degree of clear conscience and a desire to glorify God and enjoy everything that God has allowed. However, those who are weak in their conscience struggle with with that, and therefore they create rules and restrictions in place of the freedom that Christ's word allows. Now, this is very important for us to understand. Sometimes we think that Christians with more rules are more holy. That is not true. Just because someone has all sorts of conscience scruples and all sorts of restrictions and rules in their life doesn't mean they're trying to obey God. Because what it means to obey God is to bring into your life all the rules that he has said. Not all the rules that you have said. There's a big difference. Your rules are for you. God's rules are for everybody. So we bring our standards under God and say, God, are these standards your standards? For each of these issues, the conscience that the strong held was theologically informed. And the position that the weak held was operating by faith, but was theologically uninformed at least not as informed as it needed to be. Paul himself had a strong conscience on these matters, but he never explicitly commanded a weak conscience to change their theologically informed standards. I think that's very important. We're going to get into that when we talk about the harmony ensuring conduct and what Paul actually does. He never forces them to adopt his standards. He will push on them. He will challenge them. He will try to teach the Bible to them. But at the end of the day, he's going to say, you need to figure this out between you and God. 
he left room for a conscience that had not yet been corrected or calibrated on specific issues. And we need to do the same. We need to do the same. Leave room for different conscience convictions in the church. Does that mean that Paul was completely neutral on whether a believer should have a strong or weak conscience? That like he didn't care? No, he does care. The term strong and weak imply that a strong conscience is more desirable than a weak one. Why wouldn't you want your conscience to be as scripturally informed as possible? Why wouldn't you want your conscience to be guided by all that God's word has said? Having said that, though, it's also clear from Romans 14 that those with a strong conscience do not necessarily please God any more than one with a weak conscience. What appears to matter most, according to the Apostle Paul, in pleasing God is how the strong and the weak consciences in the church behave toward one another and whether they are both manifesting a charitable spirit of sacrificial love toward one another, allowing each person's space to be fully convinced in their own mind. That's the issue. Leaving each other's space to be fully convinced in our own mind according to the Scriptures. So he neither does one or the other, which is so common to what we would think, how would, how would Paul solve these sorts of disagreements? You would think he would just come in and say, okay, weak, I'm a strong conscience, let me tell you how it is, and lay out all the whole list so that they can all buy into it. He doesn't do that. Nor does he go, this doesn't matter. Quit caring about this stuff. Stop making a big deal out of it. He doesn't do that either. He says, let each one be fully convinced in their own mind. That's much harder. The, po- the, polar, the other ways are much easier. Come in, just give them a list, or say it doesn't, none of it matters. That's not the way the Bible handles it. It says, be fully convinced in your own mind and treat one another with love, which is much harder. That requires the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at the information providing context, the disagreement causing content. Now let's look and spend the rest of our time talking about the harmony ensuring conduct. What is the conduct that the Apostle Paul is advocating for to ensure harmony in the local church on issues of conscience? Well, I've already mentioned two ways he could have handled it, right? He could have said, oh, it doesn't matter, just forget about it, or here's the list of right and wrong according to my conscience. I mean, he was apostle after all, a sent one, and a called one by the Lord Jesus Christ to represent him and plant churches and finish the New Testament. He could have easily solved this controversy that way, but he didn't. And he also didn't do it in two other ways either. Think about this. He didn't issue a blank command in Romans 14. He didn't say, if you have a weak conscience, grow up. Grow up. Start eating meat. Enjoy what God gives you to enjoy, for crying out loud. If he did that, what would have happened? This solution would have ignored the danger of compelling Christians to sin against their conscience even when it is misinformed. They need to be fully convinced in their own mind according to God's word, not because an apostle screamed at them. Mature Christianity means that we help each other train our consciences without ever forcing one another to change their conscience. We train, we dialogue, we don't force or compel or manipulate. 
This is what Paul says in Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Think about that. You got a category for that? The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Does that mean you're never to share the gospel with anybody? That's not what he's talking about. (laughs) He's talking about matters of conscience. He's not talking about, oh, we're to have an overly privatized faith. Everything about our faith is just to be kept quiet between us and God. Again, read scripture in context. Don't take verses out of context. The context is talking about the conscience and matters of conscience. And so we are to keep that faith the conscience that we have between ourselves and God. Blessed is the one, Paul says in verse 22, who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. See, that's what we're concerned about, our relationship with God on matters of conscience, not other people's relationship with God on matters of conscience. I'm saying that specifically, on matters of conscience. I'm not talking about a brother or sister wandering into immorality and adultery. Well, that's between you and God. I mean, I don't want to judge or anything. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about diet, days, food, stuff like that. Things that, the big list I gave you last week of things that Christians get all hung up about that they shouldn't in terms of making them legislated in the body of Christ. So that's what what Paul's discussing. Then in verse 23, he says, but whoever has doubts, that is doubts about what he's doing according to his conscience, is condemned if he eats because he's going to feel defiled, because he's not convinced that it's right, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, that's why Paul's very careful. He wants the Christians to be doing this from faith, from trusting that that's what God's Word teaches, and that is according to what the Bible says. So Paul would say, listen, this is what I think, but you be fully convinced in your own mind. You operate from faith. You keep that between yourself and God. And you don't pass judgment on each other because of stuff like that. So that's one way he didn't handle it, by just issuing a blank command. Neither did he do the opposite command, to the strong. He doesn't say, if you have a strong conscience, you must stop eating meat entirely, since exercising your freedom negatively affects those with a weak conscience. Does he say that? No, he doesn't. Why? Because that solution is also bordering on sin, since it comes dangerously close to the asceticism that he condemns the false teachers for in 1 Timothy 4 about forbidding marriage and forbidding things that God created to be received with thanksgiving. See, when you start to say no to the things God says yes to, you put yourself in the false teacher camp. That's not good either. That's condemned in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4 and Colossians 2, 20 and 22. It is a sin to be stricter than God. So he doesn't handle it either one of those ways, by issuing the, the call to the weak to grow up, nor to the strong to give it up. He doesn't say to do either of those things. So what does he do? Well, he does two things. He teaches us how to relate to the issues, and he teaches us how to relate to one another, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about. How to relate to the issues, how to relate to brothers and sisters who differ. So number one, how to relate to the issue. This is very simple. He says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. That is, we allow space for others to have their views. We learn from their views. We do our homework by reading multiple sources 
from different angles on the issue to try to understand why Christians arrive at different convictions on this. We test every view by the Word of God, and then we arrive at a fully formed, graciously held conviction on this matter of opinion. That's what we do. That's how we relate to the issue. Allow others to have their views, learn from the views of others, do your homework by reading multiple sources, not just all the people that agree with you, and to strengthen your conscience resolves. Test every view by the word of God and arrive at a fully formed, graciously held, humble conviction on this matter of opinion. I chose every one of those words carefully. Fully formed, graciously held, humble conviction on this matter of opinion. That's how you relate to the issue. Secondly, how do you relate to brothers and sisters who differ? You love them. You love them. That's a simple answer. Romans 14, 1 and 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. He shouldn't feel an inch smaller in your presence. Think about it. You got a big fellowship of the strong over here in the corner talking. A weak brother walks up. Do they want to go, oh, I'm sorry. They should feel fully included. Because, brother, we care about 99% of the things that matter the most. We care about Jesus, making disciples, glorifying God, working with honor to the Lord, raising our families and the nurturing and that We care about this kind of stuff. Not whether or not you're going to go to Texas Roadhouse and eat a steak. And I'm going to sit and eat a salad. To use the Jewish Gentile distinction. We also see in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. The point is, welcome him, verse 1. Welcome him, welcome him. Paul underscores this again at the end of our passage in Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another. Notice, he brackets this passage with welcoming. That's what he wants. He wants Christians everywhere to welcome one another. And it doesn't just mean say hi. It means fully embrace them as a brother and sister in Christ with equal standing as you have. That's what welcome means. While making it clear that he does not agree with those who have a weak conscience, Paul does not berate those who have a weak conscience for being immature or tell them to get with the program, but he does lovingly label them as weak as an indicator that they have room to grow, but he calls them weak in faith because he knows they are operating out of God-honoring impulses. Yet how unlike Paul some of us can be at times, our gut reaction, whatever our third-level issue is, is to immediately try to change the mind of somebody, of the one who differs from us. We want to convince them that we are right while there is a time and a place for such interaction, we must realize that as long as God's people have long-standing ways of thinking that are not easy to give up, and as long as those ways of thinking are not a threat to the gospel or a hindrance to the work of the church, we should lovingly bear with and tolerate those differences without feeling an unnecessary compulsion to change anyone's mind about them. Plus, on these matters, God is their judge, not you. This is what Paul says in Romans 14, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. On these matters of conscience, you leave the judgment between them and God. God, They're going to have to stand before God and give an account for their behavior according to their issues of conscience. And you will too. And I will too. And what God's mostly concerned about in this time is we welcome one another and we love one another across those differences. Do you question the salvation or do you ever question the salvation of those who differ from you on secondary and tertiary issues? This is sinful judgment. Your brother and sister are not your servants to judge. They belong to Jesus, not to you. You did not save them. You did not atone for them. Your spirit does not indwell them. Our brothers and sisters will stand before God, and Paul has confidence, notice, not that they're going to fall, but that they'll stand. Because he trusts the good-hearted motives of Christians. He knows that they're operating out of faith, even if they're doing so from weakness. He knows they're operating out of faith. He says God's going to be able to make them stand. They're going to stand. I will, you will, we all will give an account or an answer to God for the opinions you hold and the actions you take based on them. There is no such thing as free speech before the Lord. It's all written down. Every word, we will give an account to every idle word that we have spoken. You will give an account. If you took God's judgment seriously, you wouldn't be concerned with judging others over disputable matters. You'd be concerned about your own judgment. Because if you slip into judgmentalism, you need to be concerned that you yourself will be judged because the one who does not show mercy will be rendered a judgment without mercy, according to James. Way, way more important that we have a merciful heart towards people that differ than that we enter into judgment against them. What account will you give for your thoughts and actions related to your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to have good consciences on those matters. So, here's what he tells them to do. Instead of judging one another, instead of not welcoming one another, he gives an instruction for the strong and an instruction for the weak. What does he say to the strong? He says, those with a strong conscience are to be fully persuaded of their freedoms yet equally welcoming, without a hint of condescension of those who have a weak conscience. Notice what he says in Romans 14, verse 3. Let not the one who eats, that's the strong conscience, despise the one who abstains, that's the weak conscience. And let not the one who abstains, the weak conscience, pass judgment on the one who eats, that's the strong conscience, for God has welcomed him. See? Saints, stop, don't judge one another based on these things. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So you're not, they're not your servant. They're God's servant. It's before his own master, that's God, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the strong conscience says, I have freedom to eat meat for the glory of God, but I still welcome Christians who disagree. This is love, and it reveals the gospel. 
Paul tells those with a strong conscience, you can continue to use your freedom because in principle you are right on these issues. But what you must not do is look down on or despise those who are stricter than you. You must welcome them, learn how to get along with them, learn to appreciate their subculture. You need to assume that they're being strict for God's glory, not because they're some neurotic fundamentalist. And one more thing. When you do use your freedom, don't flaunt it. Don't flaunt it. Don't be in your face about it. Wine! Get with the program. Don't flaunt it. That isn't loving because it may embolden a wavering brother or sister to sin against their conscience. And the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and is not about riffraff like that. Loving your weaker brother is more important than exercising your right to eat or drink certain things. This is what he says in verse 16. He says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the main things. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, similarly, that's what he says to the strong conscience, but to the weak conscience, he also says the following. He says, be fully persuaded on your restrictions, just as the strong are fully persuaded on their freedoms, yet be equally welcoming without a hint of judgment. Because, see, the condition of the, the, uh, the strong against the weak is to be condescending. But the condition of the weak to the strong is to be judgmental. You should say instead, if you have a weak conscience, I abstain from eating meat for the glory of God, but I still welcome Christians who disagree. This too is love and reveals the gospel. Paul tells those with a weak conscience, if your strictness in these matters is causing you to judge others and bring division to the church, you are sinning by failing to show love. The kingdom of God is about loving your brother, stronger brother, or stronger sister more than your diet. Stop trying to force others to obey the rules of your conscience. God's rules are for everyone. Your rules are for you. Welcome those who disagree with you on food and drink and holy days. Learn about them. Assume what they are exercising their freedom for God's glory and not for sinful indulgence. Just as the strong are to look at the weak and say, you know what, brother, sister, I know you're doing that from a good motive. You're desiring to please and honor the Lord. And the weak brother says to the strong brother, I know why you're doing that. You're doing that because you desire to please and honor the Lord. Wouldn't it be amazing to be in a church where everyone gave each other that kind of benefit of the doubt? Man, talk about a breath of fresh air. Where we gave each other the benefit of the doubt on those differences instead of putting the worst possible spin on everything our brothers and sisters are doing. I'm going to to conclude with this because the reasons I've given you are not even the most compelling reasons that Paul gives. Like, just love each other. and it's not, That's not the main reason. The main reason is the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. That is always to be uppermost in our minds and affections as Christians. And when you see a group of Christians squabbling over third-level tertiary issues of conscience, you can guarantee no one's preaching the gospel around there. No one caring about the advance of the mission of the glory of God. It's sad. Ingrown, inward, broken church. 
that is only focused on itself. May God prevent us from ever becoming that. May we be so compelled to, and to magnify the gospel and the glory of God that we will gladly lay these things down to the appropriate level so that we can serve and advance the cause of God. That's what he does. His most compelling argument is to magnify the gospel because when a church collectively reaches a maturity of conscience whereby they are free to be flexible in disputed matters, you've got a host of missionaries in your midst. See, that's the point. That's what we talked about last week. Strong Christians are the only ones that can be like lifelong cross-cultural missionaries because they've got to bend and flex on conscience issues all the time. So Paul wants to raise up an army of missionaries in the church, and the way that happens is by equipping the church to be strong in conscience. Romans 14, verses 13 through 15 underscore this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He says, I have a strong conscience, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy. There's a strong word. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. See, he's about glorifying God, the unity of the church, the advancement of the mission of God. Our ultimate goal is not to simply stop judging each other. To stop judging those who are free or to stop looking down on those who are strict. That's a low-level Christian virtue. It's an important one, but it's not the main thing. The ultimate goal is to become all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. That's the ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to follow the example of the one who saved us. You say, Pastor Mark, how are you going to get to the gospel when you talk about considering conscience? Look at chapter 15, because that's what Paul does. He says, verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and do not, not to please ourselves. Who does that sound like? Who's the strongest person in the universe? Jesus Christ. Who felt like he had an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak? Us. And not to please himself. Does that sound like Philippians 2 to you? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, so that he might die the brutal death of the cross. Yeah, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Christ gave up his rights to save us out of love. He gave up the joyous, strong freedoms he had of the heavenly courts to come to earth as a strict, obedient Jew to save us, to fulfill righteousness for us, to obey everything that we've disobeyed, to take his perfect life to the cross and die under the wrath of God for our sin. There is no one who did more in this category than Christ. Chapter 15, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Is that not what Christ did for us? We're saved because he sought to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but it's as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. said, I got the sinner's judgment. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that's the way we're supposed to operate as Christ followers. Around Jews, Paul was happy to be strict, 
around Gentiles. Paul was happy to be free. He didn't count his freedoms or his comfort as the highest priority, but instead he asked himself this, I want all of my actions to be sensitive to the consciences of my fellow believers, and I want all my actions to advance the gospel of Christ, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to have that happen. This is what concerned, this is my closing illustration, this is what concerned Francis Schaeffer so many years ago in 1974, six years before I was even born. But he, we've been preaching, he's been preaching about this stuff a long time. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. But Francis Schaeffer at the Lausanne Conference on Missions back in 1974 gave a, an important address called Two Contents and Two Realities, where he was advocating and pleading with people for the sake of the mission of God. And he wrote in that lecture, later became a small book, talking about the way the church was interacting then with the hippie generation of the 60s. He's preaching in 74, right? This is just out of it. And he says to that group, the obvious illustration is how the church treats the hippie or a person dressed in this different way. Young people come to us at Labrie from the ends of the earth, become Christians, and go home and then try to find a Bible-believing church that will accept them without all the change of lifestyle. I do not mean they try to retain a drug life or a promiscuous sex life, which would be against the word of God. I mean, for example, the way they dress or talk. It is one of my greatest sorrows. The evangelical church often will not accept the person with his lifestyle unless it fits into the middle-class norm in that particular geographical location. And unhappily, we often do not realize what we have done when we do this. It is not only a lack of love, we have destroyed the absolutes of the word of God by making something else equal to God's absolutes. This has been around a long time, brothers and sisters. And Romans 14 never ceases to be important. Had the church embraced Romans 14, it would have never behaved that way toward the hippie generation. I'm not saying every church did that. There are plenty of churches that didn't. But certainly he got enough feedback from the students that he sent to the states that they were just trying to go to church and they were being judged by how they looked. That is a violation of Romans 14. It's not about ultimately who is wrong or who is right on these matters. It's about what will unify the church and advance the gospel. This type of flexible love is the mark of maturity for its ultimate focus is not on what I can or won't do, which terminates on the self, but on what is best for others and serves to advance the gospel. While we must never allow the consciences of others to determine our own conscience, we must always consider the consciences of others when we would determine our actions. You read that one more time, then we're going to close. It's the whole point of the sermon. While we must never allow the consciences of others to determine our own conscience, we must always consider the consciences of others when we determine our actions. May God make us all such people. Let's pray. Father, we are finite and sinful, and for a complex of reasons that you know far better than we do, we disagree with our fellow brothers and sisters on all sorts of disputable matters. Would you please give us grace to welcome those who disagree with us on various disputable issues? Would you please give us grace to not look down on those who are stricter than we are? Would you please give us grace to not be judgmental toward those who exercise more freedom than we do? Would you please give us grace to be fully convinced of our positions in our own minds? Would you please give us grace to practice our freedoms and restrictions for your glory and to assume that other believers are doing the same? 
Would you please give us grace to keep disputable matters in perspective, knowing that we will all someday stand before your judgment seat? Would you please give us grace to not let our freedom destroy the faith of a professing Christian who is weaker on a particular matter than we are? Would you please give us grace to build each other up in righteousness and peace and joy? Would you please give us grace to not flaunt our freedoms or to expect others to be as strict as we are? Would you please give us grace to live according to our conscience and experience your blessing? Would you please give us grace to follow the example of Christ and put others first? Would you please give us grace to bring your glory by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us? Lord, we're weak. We're selfish. We need so much endurance and encouragement to live with our brothers and sisters in this way. You are the God of endurance and encouragement, as you say in this passage. So please grant us to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus that together with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's rise and sing to him with that one voice right now.